on this episode of This Calling. When you sit with someone and you have a moment where in a, a pastoral exchange or, or even in preaching or, or teaching or anything else, where you can see in someone's eyes and in their face and hear in their voice that for whatever reason you shared the right few words, the right phrase that unlocked something for them, that's the best. Welcome to This Calling, Conversations About Vocation. I'm Chris Arnold, a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. These are the calling stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I talk to Aaron Zook. Aaron is a priest in the Episcopal Church, serving in a number of roles, parish priest in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, diocesan clergy staff, canon lawyer and professor. We talk about the link between theater and the priesthood and the insights gained from wearing lots of hats. Here's our conversation. Well, Aaron, welcome to this calling. Thanks for talking to me today. How are you in your uh, Corona-tied bunker uh, I, I'm doing okay. We've got, uh, it, I live in Chippewa Falls, which is a, a relatively small community, but we're right on uh, a major highway that gets us in and out of a couple of other places quickly. So I can, I can do so without having to interact with a ton of people physically. Um, I am at home with my wife, who's a librarian at the public library in Eau Claire, and her particular focus is is largely based on digital services. So she's been very busy over the last six weeks. Uh, and then we have a seven-year-old daughter, and we've been doing all of her virtual learning as well. So it's yeah. been um, a lot of time doing things we're not used to doing. Uh, and we're starting to get comfortable with them and get into a bit of a, a groove. So we're, we're handling it uh, a lot better than, than most people have it. So, so we're, we're well. Good. Good. I hope it stays that way. So you are a priest in the Episcopal Church, and you wear a couple of different hats. Tell, tell me about do. those hats. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a parish priest uh, with two different parishes in the Chippewa Falls area. One is a, a larger downtown church that in its history going way back uh, was very nearly the cathedral for the Diocese of Eau Claire, uh, but has since shrunk down quite a bit. Um, and the other is uh, a mission church that was planted by that church uh, nearly 100 years ago. It's in the apple orchards just outside of Chippewa Falls. And that's a very small parish, but uh, a very tight-knit, family-based parish. So it, it's sort of wonderful. Um, I'm also the diocesan administrator and canon to the ordinary for the Diocese of Eau Claire. So uh, as diocesan administrator, I, I do... Uh, a lot of our connective work between the diocese and parishes, and then also between the diocese and the national church. And then as canon of the ordinary, I do uh, whatever the bishop needs me to do, which takes on all sorts of fun and interesting things at times, uh, but largely is me working functionally as a, as a sounding board for him. Uh, I have uh, some different skill sets than our bishop does. And so when it's something that falls under my 
uh, world a little bit more than his. He leans on me a little bit harder. If it's something that's really in his wheelhouse, uh, then he'll uh, occasionally sort of give a hat tip to me just to sort of run through things once or twice. Uh, so that that's a, an interesting relationship that takes on a lot of different variations. Uh, and then I also work uh, as an adjunct professor of polity and canon law at Neshota House Theological Seminary. Uh, that's uh, a relationship that started several years ago uh, when they had a, a void in their parish ministry uh position, they initially just sort of farmed it out to a a large handful of us that came down and taught in our own specialties. Uh, Over time, they now have brought somebody in to be their full-time parish ministry professor. I I have occasional conversations with that new professor uh, about different things that he uh, might want to try out or about new permutations in the canons of which there are continually uh, new permutations in the canons. Uh, and then I work uh, sort of freelance as a canon lawyer uh, from time to time, working certainly within our own diocese as a diocesan administrator, but then uh, with other neighboring dioceses and a couple that are more far flung with individuals that are dealing with canon law issues uh, and with uh, a handful of other groups like religious communities. There's a, a Benedictine community in the Chicago area that I've worked with fairly extensively. That's a lot of different hats. It is a lot that of different hats. Yeah. Fills up your day pretty well. It does. It's right. better that way, though. I, I don't. I, <laughs> I never get bored. It's never boring. So I don't even know where to begin with all of that. Uh, well, let's talk about the 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 journey to priesthood first. Sure. You haven't always been an Episcopal priest. I have not. Right? No. Uh, how did you wind up? Ordained? Did you grow up Episcopalian? I did some not. Other church? I, I grew up entirely out of the church. I was actually uh, I was not baptized until I was twenty eight years old. Hmm. I was baptized on a on a Sunday morning in the cathedral in the diocese of Eau Claire. Uh, eight days later, I had my first day of seminary. Uh, so that that all went fairly quickly. Before that, uh, I had been. Uh, an actor professionally for a number of years. I'd been a chef for a while. I delivered furniture. I worked at a dry cleaner. I did all sorts of different things. Uh, And I got a bachelor's degree at the university in Eau Claire with a double major in comparative studies in religion and comprehensive theater. So I did a a whole lot of theater. um, And at the same time, uh, I was doing my studies in religious studies, which was really, uh, because it's a state school, there's not a whole lot of theology being taught, which means that they lean heavily on Eastern religions because they tend to be uh, less about theology and more about uh, practical daily life. So there's a whole lot more detail they can get into there. Um, Yeah, so it... Uh, one of the ways that I oftentimes say it is that I, I went to college and I had this image in my mind that college was going to be uh, equal parts dead poet society and animal house. <laughs> um, and in the first few years that I was there, especially as a theater major, I saw plenty of animal house and saw very, very little of dead poet society. There, there wasn't yeah. a whole lot of of active um, mind expansion going on um, out, outside of people's own sort of personal pharmaceutical experiences. Um, <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of things where people were really actively trying to get a, a wider view of the world or humanity or anything like that. Um, 
I, I stumbled into a course in the religious studies department and I loved it. Uh, I took another uh, and loved that as well. It was two courses that were taught by the same professor who would come down and teach a, a one, one day a week, a three hour seminar course. Um, I, I took his course on the Holocaust and then I took his course on Judaism uh, and absolutely loved them. Uh, and then I found out that with two courses under my belt, I could pick up a uh, uh, minor in religious studies only by taking three or four more classes. And so I looked around, I found one that looked very interesting called the psychology of religion, which at the time, not being a part of the church and, and just sort of being fascinated by religion and theology and, and all of that, uh, it, it seemed interesting. I loved it. I, I took the course. Uh, it was an absolute train wreck because I had no background in any of it outside of my own reading. Um, but I, I enjoyed it a lot. And so I started taking more and more. And there was one course that I was skipping to get the minor. And I skipped it long enough that my advisor finally said, you know, if you take this course and one other course, instead of a minor, you could just have a second major. And so I... I went for the second major and, and did that and, and graduated from the university with a, a double major in, in theater and religious studies. Um, and as you could imagine, the, the job opportunities were just flooding through the door with those. Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, those are, uh, when, when you're a child, your parent looks down at you and says they could be a doctor or a lawyer or a banker or something like that, but let's hope they do something lucrative like theater or religious studies. Um, or or so, both somehow right. at the same time. I made time. my parents very proud that way. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And uh, yeah, it went through a lot of sort of weird permutations over the next couple of years. The, the biggest thing uh, was my wife, um, who at the time she and I had been dating for a couple of years. She made it clear as we started to discuss the possibility of marriage that uh, she would not marry me if I wasn't baptized. And the way she said it was, I, I don't care if you have a friend take you down to the river and do it. I'm not going to get married to you unless you're baptized. And that sort of, uh, it forced me to take a look uh, and to, hmm. to honestly consider being a part of the institution instead of being at arm's length from the institution. To, to that point, it was all intellectual, intellectual exercise. Uh, and I hadn't had to take any of it personally. I hadn't had to let any of it into my heart uh, and and try to consider it from inside. Uh, that allowed me to continually critique them without having to do anything about it. It allowed me to to stay really separate. Uh, and in the end, um, it it was far too important to be married to her. That was if any part of a call was clear to me at that point. That part was was very clear. Uh, I set everything up through the Episcopal priest in town where she was going to church. Uh, and at the same time, I was considering going into a master's program to teach religious studies. Uh, I found through him that there was a new one happening that was a hybrid online in-person master's degree. I was a, a master of arts in uh, ministry through Neshota House. Um, and, and so I signed up for it. I, I was baptized, like I, like I told you, I was baptized on a Sunday. Eight days later, I started seminary. That first day on campus, um, I, I thought, if, if these people are an indication of what the church is really like on the inside, I don't want any part of it. Uh, <laughs> by Friday at lunch, I talked to, to my wife on the phone, and she said, how's it going? And I said, I, I think I'm supposed to be a priest. Uh, and, it, and it all went very quickly from there. 
a lot of a lot of weird twists and turns uh, along the way, but uh, more or less from an internal standpoint, it was it was very smooth from there. It, it was pretty clear once I started knocking down those walls that um, that this is what I was supposed to be doing. Was it you knocking down those walls, or is there um, some divine action in there? It, it was a divine action in there. I, I think in a lot of different ways. He he, he was kind enough as the walls came down to make sure I was looking in their direction so I could see them and label them and understand what was happening and instead of coming in completely on the back door. Um, uh, one of the ways that I often describe it is, uh, and this makes sense to people who have lived in the Midwest for a long time, but when, when I was a kid, I, I'm the youngest of four boys. Uh, my parents and, and my brothers and I lived in a ranch house in Fall Creek, Wisconsin, which is a, a tiny little village, 1,100 people. Um, and during the summer, we would get tornadoes that would come through. Uh, and when they did, my parents would take us all into the kitchen, open up the drunk, junk drawer, and start pulling out flashlights. Uh, and they'd pull out a flashlight <laughs> and test to see if it would work. It, it inevitably would never work. So they'd put new batteries in it, test to see if it would work, and it worked. And then they would hand one to one of us, one of their children. Uh, and when the four boys all had flashlights then, and the parents were still getting flashlights for themselves, uh, we would be doing what kids do with flashlights, right? Hanging them under our face to, to look like a ghost or fighting with them like lightsabers or something like that, and just sort of uh, making all kinds of fun with them. But once we all had flashlights, then my parents would say, okay, now turn the flashlights off because we're going to need those now. It was okay to play around with them while we were all getting ready. But now that we're all ready, you can't play around with them because we give you those for a reason. And when I look at my call, I, I think of it as being a lot like that. You know, um, God sent me down a lot of different paths uh, to do theater um, and to be a, a cook uh, and to move furniture and all of that, to study religious studies from a lot of different angles, to study philosophy from a lot of different angles. All of that was was him sort of packing in all of these tools. And while he was still building up the tool set, uh, he didn't care if I was just playing around with them and having my own fun and, and wasting time. But once they were all in there, then he kind of said, okay, now you can't play around with them anymore because I didn't give them to you just to play around. I gave them to you to do something very specific with. So, um, so yeah, it, it was, uh, it, it was definitely his work going on in there. Um, he was, he was, uh, generous enough to let me know exactly why he needed it and, and to make it very clear to me once those times came. So what, uh, if you were raised unchurched, why the curiosity with religious studies? What what was um, drawing you? Yeah, I've I've got two answers for that. Um, <laughs> one one is uh, is a very Melchizedek kind of thing. the 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 idea that um, that from the start, this is what he expected me to be doing, uh, and, and so there was a, a part of that curiosity that was a, a seed he planted at some point um, that that would draw me into the places where I would start to pick up those tools and 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 have an eye open for those sort of things. Um, the other one that, that's a little bit more generic is is in an, an internal drive to understand why people do the things they do. Uh, when I did theater, that was always my my crux. That was always the foundation of what I was working on. It, it wasn't, can I make this guy silly or can I make this guy interesting or anything like that? It was always, now, why would he say that as a response to that question? Why would he perform this act? Um, 
and it was all about intent, mostly from a drive of why do people behave the way they behave, which is a, a, a fascinating and, and deep and strange subject, which before I was in the priesthood, uh, I felt like I was looking at it for one reason. Uh, after being a priest for a number of years, I, I understand it was for a totally different reason. Um, when I was studying it, it was in, it seemed like intellectual curiosity, and, and now it it's clear that it was it was more a manner of of developing empathy to be able to to see the world through another person's eyes, so that rather than reacting to what they're doing, just as this is how it affects me, I, I can react to what they're doing, what they're saying in terms of, okay, I see why you feel that way. And I can see why this seems like the right thing to do or to say right now. Um, now I can walk next to you and, and talk to you the way Christ wants to talk to you because he understands why you're making that decision. Uh, I didn't understand. Now, now that I'm getting into your skin a little bit, now that I'm seeing through your eyes a little bit, uh, that helps me understand it a little bit better. And, and now I can tell a little bit more about how he would talk to you about it, how he would address it with you. So, uh, again, it was a, an, another one of those things where it, it was uh, it, it's a sharp and strong tool, uh, and I needed it very much to be able to do what I do. Uh, and so it, it just sort of it, it started as that seed, and it, and it grew into a lot of different things through a lot of different ways. So getting baptized in order to get married, mm-hmm. I mean, that's not St. Paul on the road to Damascus. Right? That's not. not a classic kind of conversion story. It's not. But I mean, plenty of people get baptized for that kind of reason. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, basically, I'm inviting you to reflect a little bit on on the conversion event of your baptism and right. how it fits into the rest of your kind of uh, your journey with, with the Lord. Yeah. So um, I, I would say this, that, that initial moment, the moment of my baptism and, and the, what, what I would look back now and, and talk about in, in terms of things like ontological change and all of that um, at the time it wasn't right at the time it was uh a, a very sort of uh, Protestant Rotary Club mindset from me. It was, this is something I have to do to be able to do some of these other things. Um, uh, for example, when I, when I applied to that program at Neshota House, I, I talked to uh, Carol Klukas, who was in charge of admissions at the time, and she said, um, and where were you baptized and confirmed? And I said, well, I'm scheduled to be baptized in two weeks. And she said, oh, that's interesting. We don't really require it, but I'm not sure we've ever had someone who wasn't baptized and confirmed in one of our programs before. Uh, and, and that was really what was driving the baptism at the time was um, this is something that I'm doing for my wife, for my mother-in-law and her family, because it's going to make them feel a lot better about all of this. I, I'm doing this as a way of, of obliging myself to the community in a way of the, of that parish uh, and, and being able to connect with them. I'm doing it uh, as a sort of pseudo obligation to get into this, into this program. Um, But, but like everything else, it was, it was something that once it happened, then dominoes started to fall. Um, And I think, I think for a lot of clergy people, um, the, the sacraments come at least in their mind as, as more of an endpoint, 
than a start point in the in their own experience. Um, when for most clergy people, at least most of the ones I know, um, by the time they're getting ordained, by the time they're getting confirmed, by the time these things are happening, they're already pretty set in their mind and their heart about what they're doing. Um, for me, it has largely been the other way around. It, it has largely been that um, when I was baptized, it it wasn't for uh, it wasn't with the expectation that all of the things that come along with baptism would really be a part of it. It, it wasn't with the expectation that I would be uh, sealed literally as Christ's own forever. It was more with the expectation of this is something that I have to do. You know, it uh, you, you you've got to go. Uh, pay your taxes once a year. You've got to do these other things, right? This was an obligation, a a sort of societal obligation in this smaller society of the church and the even smaller society of my wife's family. Um, But once it happened, then all the mystery starts going on, right? All all the mystery starts working in your heart and working in your head and starts opening up things that you didn't necessarily consider ahead of time. Um, When when I was baptized, I, I was not a huge fan of the Nicene Creed. Even when I was confirmed, which happened, you know, six months later, um, I, I was not a huge fan of of the Nicene Creed, and I looked at it and said, you know, that's not really a great wording for this part. That that's not really what we mean when we say that part. Uh, and for me, again, that was a, a way to sort of keep it at arm's length. Uh, after being baptized, after being confirmed, uh, that starts to gnaw at you, and, and it's sort of like putting a bunch of rough stones into a tumbler. Um, over time, you sort of smooth out, your understanding of the phrasing sort of smooths out, uh, and, and you start to become comfortable, and you can work together in a, in a little bit better of a way. Um, so w- with all of those transitions, for me, it was always that. It was being thrown in rough, um, and after having done it, and everything can start to smooth out. I think um, there are a, a good number of people that I've talked to who have become Christians as adults, and it's my own story as well. I was raised unchurched, and it was my late 20s, where at, at the end of a lengthy period of kind of intellectual curiosity, um, then I had a um, uh, kind of a, a fairly profound experience of hitting, you know, my emotional rock bottom. Right. And then it's like my heart caught up with where my head had been going for years. And I'll tell that story in some other episode, I'm sure. But, uh, but my experience with the first couple of years of being an active member of the church was that I figured that I was basically okay. You know, I'm a 46 year old straight, white, married, educated, English speaking, middle-class male. I was all right. Right. Like (laughs) the whole society around me was basically affirming that I'm not the one who needs to be fixed. And for a while, a big part of the attraction of being part of, the church was that I thought, well, this is great. I can be part of a society of people who's dedicated to making the world a better place. And I can kind of join forces with other like-minded people. Cause I had my own ideas of how society needed to be run better, of course. Sure. Um, and I can team up with other people and we can be a force for good. And it's like, it never really occurred to me 
for what feels like longer than it should have uh, taken for me to to figure this out. Um, that I actually needed to be pretty radically broken down and rebuilt. And it's like, it just, it didn't occur to me that I was a work in progress myself. And it, I mean, yeah, it was midway through seminary. I think when I figured that out. So, yeah. Um, it, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, it's a very interesting thing. And, and, and listening to you talk even just briefly like that, uh, I'm, I'm struck by how in, in many ways um, our transitions uh, were so similar to each other in, in terms of coming to it late um, and 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 being in in similar positions of being you know highly educated and established in a family and all of this and and I would say even the idea of um, here's a group of people that are trying to make the world a better place uh, even that is is a shared thing the the interesting part is that um, the the way you describe it is that your heart had to sort of catch up with your head uh, and and for me the way I think about what my experience was, it was almost the opposite. It, it, it was almost that, um, that my heart was leading the way um, and, and was like hearts are just too dumb to even know how to say it. Uh, and, and my mind had to sort of catch up to understanding, oh, that's why that happened in that way. Now I get it. Now I get it. Not, not, so, not in terms of, of things like, you know, how a service goes or something like that, but more in terms of, Oh, right. That's why God had me run into that one random person in the grocery store. So they would put that idea in my head. And, and I, my heart felt it and tugged at it. Um, but my head just couldn't quite wrap around it. Now I understand after the fact. So that, that's interesting that we sort of we were walking such a similar path in so many ways. And yet uh, internally experiencing it on, on sort of polar opposite ends. That's wonderful. I love that. So you wound up at seminary at, at yeah. um, uh, 28? Uh, yeah, 28, somewhere around there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, I do uh, a two year program, master of arts in ministry, Mm -hmm. um, which was a lovely program. It was a hybrid. We would do modules that lasted three months long. We'd be on campus for five days uh, and then everything else would happen online. Um, and, and during that time I was, you know, like, like I said, I'd, I'd just been baptized. I was getting confirmed. I was, uh, working through, um, a Bible study at the cathedral in Eau Claire. Uh, the, the dean of the cathedral at the time had a commitment. It was a, a Wednesday morning Bible study. And, and once a month, he had a commitment at an assisted living place that we were connected to. And after the first couple of months, he decided, instead of skipping that Wednesday of having Bible study, uh, we'll just have Aaron sit in and moderate those Wednesdays. Uh, and so I became a sort of co-moderator which was wonderful on a lot of different levels. I, I had a lot of experience with scripture uh, through my own study and, and especially through um, my undergraduate degree, but not from the same angle, from a, from a totally different angle. Uh, and that Bible study was, was really great in, in finding some footing, in solidifying a few things about my ability to do this job, to, to be in this position, uh, just in terms of, of just the raw talent and understanding and all of that to do the work. Um, and then after a year and a half of that, give or take, um, that, uh, that Dean left the cathedral under, um, less than ideal circumstances. Uh, I kept the Bible study running for another year until they finally started bringing somebody around to, to be the next Dean of the cathedral. Uh, at, at around that same time, 
we found a, uh, or shortly before that, we, we got a provisional bishop because we'd been without a bishop the entire time I was there. When I was baptized, the Diocese of Eau Claire had no bishop. Uh, I was confirmed by Bishop Russ Jacobus, who came over from Fond du Lac twice a year to do confirmations for us. Um, and all of that time, I'd been doing a seminary program, uh, discerning a call to ordained uh, clergy life, uh, discerning it myself, with my family, with the people of the cathedral. Uh, and then we suddenly had a provisional bishop. Uh, we, we elected him at a special election on a Saturday. He started on Monday morning. I was the, the second person into his office. Uh, and I said, hey, I'm here because I'm, I believe I'm called to the priesthood. And he said, okay, well, we'll have to start looking at seminary programs. And I said, I, I graduate in two weeks. So what's the second <laughs> step then after looking at, um, and he and I worked together for a long time. Uh, the, that provisional bishop was Ed Lydell, who's uh, still around the area. He does a lot of life coaching. He was the, the bishop of Eastern Michigan when it first became its own diocese. He was our provisional for a number of years, did a bunch of, of interesting stuff with us. Uh, but my relationship with him was meeting with him uh, very regularly and, and just sort of discerning my call, him asking me all sorts of random questions, me giving him uh, all sorts of random answers, uh, him looking for a reason not to move me forward in the process because he was just going to be there for a couple of years and he didn't want to <laughs> tie himself into something uh, yeah. or commit to me and, and then have the next bishop disagree with him. Uh, so he he had a lot of good reasons not to bring me in. And, and in the end, it, it just, uh, we, we agreed that this was something that I was called to do. So um, he wanted me to do a little bit more training. Uh, I had just gotten married and we looked at all sorts of different programs. I didn't want to leave my wife after less than a year of marriage to go finish a degree program. So uh, I went back into Neshota House for one year in residence uh, to turn my other degree into a, a Master's of Divinity. Uh, I spent a, a glorious year in residence with, uh, with Bishop Ed Salmon as our dean on campus, which was uh, transformative in a, a, a thousand different ways. Um, by the time I finished that degree, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, and everything moved very quickly after that. So then you wound up with all these different hats, which, which came first. So you, you graduate, you get ordained. Yeah. So I, I graduated from Neshota house. I was at the time I was in uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, that's where my wife had taken a job at a, at a little uh, private school down there called Wofford, uh, which is a wonderful little place. Um, we were attending a church there. Um, there. There was a huge church. It was nothing like a, it, Anyone who's been a regular attendee of the Episcopal Church in the Midwest, when you go to an Episcopal Church in a place like South Carolina, uh, you understand what a big church really is. They had we. I was there during the summer, which is the the slow part of the year for them, because a bunch of people either go to the beach or go up into the mountains to keep cool. So they were way down in attendance to about fifteen hundred on a Sunday, um, which was mind boggling to me. Um, but. Uh, I was doing a, a, a program there as the last part of my degree work at Neshota House. I was working as their lay pastoral assistant. Uh, so I did all of the house calls for them. Not all, obviously. The rector did a bunch of house calls, and they had a, an assisting priest who did, did them as well. Um, 
but I, I ran a, a men's Bible study there. I, I did a lot of house calls. I was uh, in, in the office doing all sorts of random things. Um, we were figuring out what in the world we were going to do when our daughter was born. Um, and when I got done with all of that program, it was late summer and the rector of the parish offered me a position there. He said, you know, you, you're not in process, so it'll be a few years before we can do anything here. Um, you know, you're, um, you're partway through the process, but you can't transfer when you're partway through the process. If you were ordained, yeah. we could just take you. If you weren't ordained, we could just start and, and you'd be right at the beginning. But because you're partway through, you'd be losing a couple of years. Uh, at the same time, Bishop Lydell was getting ready to leave the Diocese of Eau Claire. We were electing a new bishop. Uh, and he said, you know, you're about to have your first child. All your family is here. I'd love for you to be here for that. And so I have uh, an option for you. Uh, our diocesan administrator is retiring. Uh, that would be a halftime position. Uh, we have two tiny parishes in Spooner and Springbrook in Washburn County. Uh, the two of them together kind of make a halftime position. But most importantly, there's a rectory there. So you'd have a house that you could move into, uh, get your stuff settled, have your baby, and you'd be fine. And and so that's what we went with. Um, and it was really a matter of just looking for pieces to put together to be able to to have enough income that we could get everything going. And and the the prospect of being in Wisconsin versus South Carolina, when we knew so much, so much about Wisconsin, knew so many people here, were were very comfortable here. Uh, it just it felt like the the right thing to do. Um, and so it was a necessity at first to have all of the hats. Uh, and as we started doing them, it, it just became, uh, partially it just became the new norm that we were doing, that I was doing all of these things. Uh, but much more than that, over time, it became clear that uh, it, it really was the ideal setup for me. It, it was not too much parish life uh, and it was not too much administration. It was a sort of wonderful balance between the two. Uh, I, I was able to learn a lot about parishes by doing two parishes at the same time. And mm -hmm. I was able to learn a lot about the way they interact with each other by doing a lot of diocesan work too. So uh, it, it really, it, it filled up my knowledge for somebody who grew up outside of the church. Uh, I made up for lost time by seeing it from a ton of different angles all at once, once I was ordained. All right. So for the parish priests who are listening to this, what, what's a piece of advice that comes from your diocesan administrators, canon lawyers perspective, yeah. what do you want parish priests to know? Uh, I, everyone who's going through the process in the diocese of Eau Claire that I deal with, I, I always tell them a, a few things that are, that are crucially important. But the one thing that I make sure they hear is this, when the service gets done, the first thing you do uh, is, you know, you, you stand at the back or the side door or whatever, and you're still vested and you shake everybody's hand and everybody goes off to coffee hour. Before you go off to coffee hour, you go into the sacristy and before you even take off your chasuble, you take your pen and you fill in the service register. You fill it in <laughs> right then because then at the end of the year, it's filled in and your parochial report is super easy. But I also tell them this is, this is the main thing. You, by doing that, you can tell your parishes, I need five minutes before I come down to coffee hour so I can fill in the service register. And what you get is you get five minutes of silence. And, and there might be nothing more important when you finish a service than having a few minutes to just be alone with you and God and, and sort of 
reset yourself. When you're doing a service, when you're celebrating the mass, when you're um, when you've got a funeral or a wedding or a baptism or anything, there are all sorts of wonderful, beautiful spiritual things going on. And then there are all sorts of practical things going on too. Mm-hmm. You're wondering if you stuttered your way through the apostles creed. You're, you're wondering if you said the wrong name during the prayers of the people. You're wondering if you were clear enough in everything. You're wondering why that one person didn't come up for communion. You're, you've got all these questions in your head that are not wonderful and spiritual and you need that moment to reset yourself and to remind yourself that for that hour or hour and a half or whatever it was, I, I was playing a very particular role for God to his people. Uh, now I've got to go back to also being his people because when you're mm. in the middle of it, when you're at the altar, it's hard to have a whole lot of experiences as yourself and feel them while they're happening. That five minutes right after the service lets all of that soak in and you can feel all that good stuff. Hey, what is your, uh, what do you think is the connection between theater and liturgical leadership? Because I did a little bit of theater from the tech side of things. Yeah, I've I've trod the boards once or twice, but I was a terrible <laughs> actor. But I did a lot of uh, lighting and sound work. Um, and it seems to me as though liturgical leadership is, in a sense, a kind of theater. Yeah. Not in the sense that we're putting on a mask and being fake, but in the sense that we are, um, we are, uh, facilitating the transformation of time and space. You know, we're, we're taking the space, the church, the theater, we're taking it into a different realm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there are a ton of things, a ton of things from theater that are, that are huge in, in doing this kind of work. Um, a, a bunch of them are practical, you know, being able to be, um, to, to speak clearly in a way that people can hear and understand that, that in and of itself is, is huge. Uh, that, that's not unique to theater, but people who have done theater have a, they've got a leg up on people who haven't because that, that already puts you into the, into the mindset of everything I do, with my hands and my feet and my face, people are watching me do it and they're going to interpret it as meaning something. Uh, and, 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 and being able to, to understand what you look like and sound like from an external perspective from doing theater, that that's crucial. It's yeah. huge. And it, 80 feet helpful. away as well. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. It, it's very, very helpful. Um, understanding, like you say, that, that idea that um, it, it's not exactly creation um, but maybe more so recreation or, or something in that general uh, area where we're taking something that has happened somewhere uh, that other people put a whole lot of hands into and we're kind of bringing it to life here in the moment in a different place in a different time. Uh, there's a lot of that that transfers as well. Um, so th- that, that mindset makes a huge difference. The idea of being comfortable walking onto a stage and saying, I'm a doctor or I'm a policeman when you aren't uh, can oftentimes be very helpful as a priest as well, because there are days where you feel like uh, in the entire history of the church with all of the clergy that they have had, I am perhaps the worst of them uh, or the least equipped or, or whatever it might be. And those days uh, being able to walk through the doors uh, and put on the chasuble and, and still act like you ought put on the chasuble uh, can be very important. One of the things that, that for me has always been the most crucial 
is that I am eerily comfortable opening my mouth without knowing what words are about to come out. (laughs) I've been on stage a number of times where that happened. I I did for, for 10 years, I worked at a place in Eau Claire called Fanny Hill Dinner Theater. uh, And we would do 60 performances over the span of two and a half months. Uh, And when you do the show that many times, you forget where you are in the show frequently. Uh, And it's your line and you know, you're about to say something, but you can't for the life of you remember what it is that you're about to say. And, And I learned over the years that if I just open my mouth, muscle memory usually kicks in and something comes out. And more often than not, it's the right thing for me. When I'm preaching, when I'm doing pastoral ministry with people one-on-one or in groups or in anything, uh, when I get asked a question, I open my mouth and, uh, mercifully, uh, I, I have been informed by life far too many times, uh, and I'm clearly aware that I'm an idiot, and whatever it is that I'm thinking is probably not the right answer. Uh, So I never for a second hesitate when I open my mouth and God suggests a word to just say the word that he's suggested. Uh, And so that, that being comfortable not knowing exactly what I should say next makes it very easy for him to work with me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm clear. I'm clearly getting out of the way more often than not. And there's something in the scripture about the spirit giving you the right word to say, right? There Um, is. So what was, uh, so if you kind of came towards the church from this very heady perspective, this religious studies perspective, and you get baptized, as you admit, sort of as a social convention, um, and you head off to seminary, I suspect, thinking that maybe it'll be an interesting continuation of religious studies. Yes. Uh, that'll Correct. be something that you learn, but the, uh, th- this is all kind of happening intellectually. Exactly. What does your prayer life look like? How, how do you learn to pray? Um, I, I learned to pray from a lot of really great people. Who, who, who did it really well more than anything else. Um, what, what I was just saying about being comfortable opening my mouth and not knowing what's coming out next uh, is a big part of my prayer life as well. Uh, at, <laughs> at Nishota House, uh, I worked with a handful of people who were eerily good at it. Eerily good at it. Um, Doug McGlynn what, was one. What does it mean to be good at prayer? I'd love to... Yeah. We've, we've, a, we've a definition of good at prayer into your answer somehow, if you yeah, could. Yeah, sure. Um, so at, at Neshota House, we, we had people like Doug McGlynn, uh, who had been raised in the Methodist church. He'd been uh, a licensed Methodist preacher at, from his early teens, uh, and then came to the Episcopal church in his late teens, early 20s. Uh, but he had a mind like a steel trap. So he knew uh, the, the 28 prayer book and the 79 prayer book by heart. He knew the 1940 hymnal and the 82 hymnal by heart. He knew the Methodist prayer books by heart, the Methodist hymnals by heart. And so whenever he prayed, he was not praying extemporaneously. He wasn't just thinking up something to say, but he was stealing phrases from this prayer book's prayer for that, this prayer book's prayer for that. And that, and those were becoming incorporated into whatever he was saying. Uh, there was a, another priest on staff at the time, um, uh, Steve Schlossberg, who had been an over-the-road trucker 
who became the best preacher I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and he did much the same, where it, it was what he was reading over and over and over again that weaved its way into his prayer life. And that makes a huge difference. It makes a huge, huge difference. And, and this is why. If you're praying and the words that are coming out are wonderful and they're eloquent and they sound vaguely like Shakespeare, whether you're using a heightened language like right one language or 28 prayer book language or contemporary language, but when the phrases are coming out and they are coherent and they make sense, you finish that prayer and you feel like, yeah, that's good. That's a good thing to pray about. And, and you walk out into the world in whatever form then with that in your head. If what you're doing is you're doing what we used to refer to as the prayers of the just. God, I just want to thank you. I just want to thank you. And I just need this. And I just, 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 just. Um, when you're doing that, it feels clunky. It feels awkward. And, and afterwards, and even during it, you can get this sense of self-consciousness, this idea that you don't know how to talk to God, because it always feels weird when you do. Mm-hmm. When you're using those established written prayers, and, and when you can get to that point, like, like Doug McGlynn, and if I ever get to that point, I'll be uh, gloriously happy for God with God for having the mercy on me to get to that point. But when you can get to that point where you're using those established prayers that are well thought out, they're balanced, they're whole, they're coherent. You, you pray, and at the end of it, you feel, yes, that was right. That was a prayer. That was a good connection. My intent was clear. My expectations were clear. My promises were clear, and I can move forward. It, it's, um, there's no such thing as bad prayer, right? And any kind of prayer from anyone is good. Opening that conduit is good. Um, But the the clearer you can be, the more concise, the more coherent you can be, the better you're going to feel about it. And the more encouraged you're going to do, you're going to feel to do it more often. Hmm. Yeah. So it almost sounds as like prayer is its own literary art form. It really The crafting of the art reveals something about the artist. It, it does. Probably the artist doesn't even know until the product is out there. Yeah, I, ideally. Um, I, I, when I pray, I, I'm drawing sources from a lot of different things, um, clearly from the prayer book as much as possible. I try, to, I, I try to read the prayer book. Once you're into parish ministry, it gets hard to sit down and read the prayer book unless you're reading it in preparation for something. Um, when, when you're not actively in parish ministry, uh, reading the prayer book is wonderful. You know, the prayers and thanksgivings, uh, the prayers for individuals and families, all of those are just great. Um, one of my favorite books to pick up and just read a, a little bit or piece out of is a book called The Priest's Manual. I, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with The Priest's mm-hmm. Manual at all. Uh, wonderful yeah. little pocket-sized book um, that contains all sorts of prayers that a priest would need for walking out into the world, whether they're doing a service like a, a committal or a baptism or something like that, or going to someone's house. Uh, it contains all of these wonderful prayers for um for blessing a new home or a new bathroom or a new car or a new door or anything else. You, you start to read all of those and you find that this prayer that you're having a hard time articulating in your mind, and in your heart has actually already been written by someone else. 
it's out there. It might not be perfect, but it's very, very close. And the more you read those prayers and the more your mind starts to sort of uh, slowly incorporate them into your normal thinking, uh, those prayers can become then perfect. Because I, I'm, I might not be praying for a new home, but I'm out in the middle of the world. And what I'm praying for is a, a prayer of thanksgiving and understanding that, you know what, we, we moved six months ago. And now finally, all the boxes are unpacked. And for the first time, I'm looking over and I'm seeing my wife and my daughter and they're sitting on a couch and they're watching a movie and they're smiling and they're giggling and they've got a bowl of popcorn. And I'm about to walk into the room and I'm filled with the warmth uh, and the the incredible sense of of being complete, of having arrived and of having been given an incredibly wonderful gift. And at that moment, what I'm really thinking about is this place that we moved into, this moment has become our home. So then I've got in my head already most of a template for a prayer of thanksgiving for a new home. We didn't go out and buy a house, but we've made this building our home now. So that that makes your prayer life uh, really, really rich because you're never second-guessing yourself. You're never feeling like, you know what, I've got to understand what I want more before I can talk to God about what I want. Uh, it, it gives you this sense of being able to have really clear communication. What about the other direction? What about listening to God? Listening you, to God is hard. Yeah. <laughs> Does it feel easier than when you were 23? Yeah, vastly, vastly easier. Uh, for, for me, um, the, the big thing was, like, like I've said in a few different ways, um, coming to the clear realization that I'm an idiot. And whatever it is that I'm thinking, uh, as, as well-grounded as I might feel like it is, is in all likelihood a very narrow view uh, and will probably lead me into trouble. And so uh, if I can just acknowledge the fact that I'm pretty dumb uh, and, and let someone who knows an awful lot more about everything than I ever could get his voice in edgewise, then I, I'm going to have uh, a lot better, happier, simpler, uh, and more fulfilling life. So uh, in terms of, of being able to listen to God, you've got to understand that for different people, he talks in different ways. Um, sometimes it's a big slap in the face and it's somebody you respect walking up to you and saying, you're making a huge mistake. Uh, or someone you respect saying to you, you know what, I really respect that you can do this. You know, sometimes it's really obvious that way. Sometimes it's it's less obvious. Sometimes it's more painful. It's things like um, leaving you for a moment in your sadness, leaving you for a moment in your sense of lack, uh, so that you can kind of sit in that and uh, not so much like a punishment, but but just sort of a realization of wow, this is this is what I have built for myself. Is this sadness? Is this this lack, this feeling that I'm completely lost and I'm here because I willfully chose to walk through the door that got me here. You know, um, sometimes he's very quiet th that way. The, the biggest thing is the more quiet you are, uh, the louder he's going to be, right? That, that still quiet voice that reaches out to us, that, that puts those ideas into our hearts. If, if we're constantly yelling, it's very hard to hear him whisper. Every now and then I go up to the uh, Order of Julian of Norwich Monastery up in White Lake, and um, the first, usually the first and sometimes the second uh, liturgy, it's usually one of the one of the offices, the first one that I go to and I pray with that community, I think, all right, 
I'm at the monastery. There's a lot of silence here. I'm going to rein it in and be as quiet as I can. And I go in there and I, I, I work hard at being as quiet as I can. And I realize that my voice is still booming. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the, the regular members who are up there, um, they, they are so quiet. Um, that compared to them, I just sound like I'm, you know, a bull in a china shop, just yeah. like clumsily stumbling around, knocking stuff off the off the shelves. Although I feel as though I move through the world fairly gently, but everything's, you know, by comparison. Right. Um, exactly. Anyway, so how did you get into the canon law side of things? You're I, not I, a lawyer by background. I'm not. No, oh, I I just love it. Um, I I described it. When I first started teaching uh, at Neshota House Canon Law, um, I described it in terms of of tiers of revelation. Uh, if you think of of Christ's incarnation as being the most pure and huge and obvious form of of God's revelation, um, and you think of of something really really small on the other end, right? Some some odd little nudge that you got. Uh, uh, a postcard that comes to you on your birthday every year from from the church that everything is pre-written except your name is sort of stenciled in really quickly that we prayed for you on that day, whatever that, if that's the sort of lowest form of revelation and the highest form is Christ's incarnation, then somewhere in the middle, there's a level of of revelation that consists of how we agree that we're going to hold ourselves and each other accountable to being Christ in the world. And that's canon law, right? That's polity and canon law. That's how we administrate ourselves and each other, uh, how we agree to hold ourselves accountable to each other. That, that's a, it's a form of revelation. It's a sort of bizarre form of revelation, right? Um, but at the same time, it, it teaches a, a lot about who we expect to be who we try to be and who we expect each other to be and how that is expressive of Christ in the world. Um, one of my favorite things about canon law is whenever I've taught it, whether it's to an individual person um, or something online or, or at Neshota House or anywhere else, is I talk about Title Four which for us is the, the disciplinary canons, right? If, if a priest or a deacon does something particularly bad or nefarious. Uh, This is the means by which they are examined and investigated and tried and and also disciplined. Uh, And it has changed a lot over the years. It used to be, um, if the bishop wants you out, you're out. If the bishop's okay with you, you're in. Uh, That clearly was not the best system for a number of different reasons. And they've developed a system that is uh, infinitely more complex and difficult. Um, and is no more effective than the other one was, uh, oddly. Uh, but they've created this whole system. But one of the things that I love about it is that there's um, there, there's a, a portion of the canon that deals with clergy misconduct. And it, it deals with all sorts of different things, and it lays out several different components that can be considered clergy misconduct. And it's things like not going to your church on Sundays anymore, which is not a surprise. If, you, if you're if you a priest and you stop going to your church on Sundays, that's not accurate. Uh, it's not a good thing. Uh, and there are all sorts of things like sexual or financial misconduct and all of that. But the final one uh, is just conduct unbecoming a clergy person. 
And that is such a weird and vague thing. And I always bring it up to people that I'm talking to about canon law. And I say, literally, if you're walking down the street and a person sees you and they don't like you and they go to your bishop or your intake officer and they say, I saw father so-and-so and they were walking down the street and they spit in the middle of the sidewalk that if that is a particularly weird thing in the eyes of your bishop or your intake officer, you can be removed from the clergy for having done that. Because it would be, in their eyes, conduct unbecoming a clergy person. Uh, And I lay out all of these scenarios that are equally ridiculous like that, and their immediate response is to ask this question. So how can we prevent ourselves, then, from being called up on Title IV charges. And I always say, especially to seminarians, the same thing. The one way you can do it is to leave the classroom now, pack up your stuff, and go home. Go sell insurance, right? Go go work at a movie theater, and you'll never be brought up on Title IV charges because you <laughs> won't be a clergy person. And their response to that is, so what are we supposed to be, perfect? And I say, yes. It's almost as though... The canons were written in a way that a clergy person is supposed to be a physical representation of our incarnate God in the world. It's almost like that's what they were thinking when they wrote them. Be ye um, perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Right. Which we not, we're not. We're not at all. And we're right. not, so few of us are anywhere near it. But um, the expectation we put on ourselves and on each other of being that is a good and holy thing. So what my uh straight out of seminary, my first parish was in uh the Diocese of Lexington, and at the time Bishop Stacy Sauls was the bishop there. Mm. It was before he went off to um to work at the uh the Episcopal Church executive level. Um but and he was a, a corporate lawyer before he became a priest. He worked yes. for Delta. So he brought uh, a lawyer's background to a lot of his work. And it was um, right at the time when all of the new Title IV canons were coming out. So we were talking about them a lot at diocesan meetings. And he said, you know, having looked over the new Title IV, having seen what happens at the various levels, he said, essentially, anyone who's going to be a priest for more than 10 years from this very moment, you're going to get caught up on brought up on charges somewhere along the way because it's such an open door and it's meant to be, Yeah, it's meant to be, you know, because the problem was too many things were getting swept under the rug before. So now, uh, the door is very wide and those first few steps, well, you know this better than I do, but those first few steps are designed to be kind of on autopilot to prevent, you know, things being kind of swept under the rug quietly. Uh, but what it means, you know, the, the 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 pendulum is always swinging, and the side effect of that is that it it seems to be very easy to bring people up on charges um, for what seem to be very frivolous things. But you've helped me to gain a slightly different uh, lens on it. Um, that the the canon canon law is a spiritual document, the same way that church budgets are. Yeah, and there's. Um, you know, written down in this 
not always very poetic language. I don't think there are a lot of people who read legalese and think, well, this is, it's like one of Shakespeare's sonnets. Right. Um, but enshrined in there is the, the expectation of the whole church. Yeah. It's one of the things that I love about the prayer book is that because our liturgy is written down, it spares the laity from the, uh, the predatory whims of, of particularly clever and creative parish priests who are never as clever and creative as we think we are. That it's, and it's, it's a contract signed by the whole church that we're not going to just be arbitrary. And in a sense, canon law is the same thing um, for all the other aspects of church life. Right. What the prayer book does for worship, canon law does for all the other stuff. Yeah, and, and, and really tries to take the weight of any part of it off of people's shoulders, off, off of the parish priest's shoulders. You know, when, um, when you've got a, a family that is particularly dynamic in a parish, for better or for worse, and they're adamant that their 16-year-old son be on the vestry because they've just by canon done too many years in a row and have to roll off. But it's imperative that somebody from their family is on the vestry. The, the weight is off of you of saying, I'd rather have three years without any of you on the vestry. You can just say, I'm sorry, canon law won't allow. Um, when, when the vestry comes to you and says, we need your wife to run to be on the vestry, uh, you can do one of the few things that the church is, is very kind to clergy spouses about is that they're exempt from being able to do any of those things. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. it, it allows for all of these things. When, when you've got a question, when somebody comes to you and there's an issue in your parish, and it's one of those things where you, you're going to have to walk a very fine line, being able to say, I'm sorry, by canon, I have to bring the bishop in on this, right? Yeah. Um, th things like there, there's the wonderful rubric, in the service for the Eucharist, where if someone is in a position of, uh, of creating scandal in the parish, uh, you have the authority uh, and, and some would argue obligation in that circumstance to withhold communion from them. Uh, and the canons then require that you've got a certain period of time to bring the bishop in. And then the bishop decides whether you can continue to withhold communion or you have to let them back in. But by, by forcing all of that stuff by canon to happen under certain hats and, and to happen in certain offices, it makes it clear what your job as a parish priest is then, right? Is, is mm. to, to make everything available in terms of sacramental services, to make yourself available for pastoral stuff, uh, and, and to be a guide. But you don't have to rewrite the liturgy because the prayer book has already done it. You don't have to rewrite the theology because the church has already done that. And, and if somebody pushes back against you, then you can say, look, th this isn't what I am here to do. And I can't do that. If, if you feel like it's crucially important that we change uh, our understanding of marriage or baptism or confirmation or any of these other things, you can take that to the bishop because that's his job. That's what he's there for. My job is to be here for this other stuff. There, there's a freedom in creating those gates and mm -hmm. saying, I'm in this role, I have to stay in these gates. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, we're coming up on time. So tell me, all right, uh, very quick, your favorite part and your least favorite part about your vocational life. Uh, I haven't given you a lot of time to do it. So, no, no, no. Uh, my, 
my least favorite part is easy. My least favorite part is um, when you come up against those moments where your vocation as a priest and your vocation as a husband or a father or a son are in conflict with each other. Those are hard, really hard. Um, and there's never a right answer when those things come up um, because you're, you're either going to um, be deflating one very clear call or deflating the other very clear call by doing them. They're, they're hard situations. Um, mercifully, they usually are not things that are, um, lasting issues. They're just, they're little things, you know, um, your, your wife really wants to do some kind of minor change at the rectory, uh, and the parish pushes back on it, you know, and you're in this stuck spot where you've got to, you've got to be both and you can't really be either. Um, and you're stuck. Those, those are my least favorite, um, to, to go into detail of, of, a of specific scenarios of it would take, two or three more episodes of a podcast like this. So I won't, but th- those are my least um, where you find yourself in that struggle of, am I a priest uh, or am I a husband or am I a father or am I me in this moment? And, and which of those yeah. am I supposed to be answering to the most? Um, so that's my least favorite. Um, yeah. My favorite, there are so many good parts. There are so many wonderful things. There are so many times where as a parish priest uh, you get uh, a, a view behind the curtain of the faith um, that are wonderful. Uh, some of them are horrible to have to be back there. Um, but uh, when you sit with someone and you have a moment where in a, a pastoral exchange or, or even in preaching or, or teaching or anything else, and you have an exchange where you understand, where you can see in someone's eyes and in their face and hear in their voice, um, that for whatever reason you shared the right few words, the right phrase that unlocked something for them, that's the best. Um, hmm. and, and it's, it's the best in a weird way because you know, it's not you, that <laughs> you, yeah. you didn't come up with something brilliant. Um, and you didn't say something that other people couldn't say. He just chose to use you as the vessel for it in that moment. And there's something sort of wonderful and awe inspiring in that of like, wow, the fact that I could even be a decent vessel for a minute is pretty great. Um, yeah. But watching it happen and, and knowing um, how it could be the first day of the rest of their life, that's that's easily the best. We get to be witnesses to some pretty yeah. amazing things. Yeah. But I think one of the hardest, you know, somewhere in, in the first few years, I realized that like all the – I had to sort through a big uh, – lesson in humility for myself as a parish priest, realizing that all, nearly all the good stuff that happens is nothing to do with me. I'm just witnessing, you know, God's action that just happens to happen while I'm noticing it. And, but all the bad stuff that I contribute to definitely is me. Yeah. And, um, you know, in that, you know, there's, there's, there's a lesson in, in humility in there. And I, I have come to realize that none of that, the good or the bad, actually reflects on my value as a as a person. Yeah, that it it drove me into a deeper awareness of my um, core value as as a, a child of God. Yeah. Um, and I just hope that there's on on the balance of it all that there's more good stuff that I happen to. Uh, facilitate than than the bad stuff but you know again that, that's that's where i live <laughs> is, is the hope of that balance the the hope of of boy every time 
I, I get out of the way and let you do something right. And my fingers are involved. I, I hope that that adds up to a much larger number than the times where I say, no, 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 God, that's a great idea, but this is really how we ought to do it. Um, <laughs> that I, yeah. That, that hope that you're, that you're letting those good things happen uh, and that you're in whatever tiny way facilitating those good things happening to happen when they did um, versus the times that, that you get such a great idea and you're just bound and determined to do it. Yeah. That, that yeah. hope, the hope of that balance is huge. All right. So what's your pop culture recommendation? We got to bring oh, this on home. What's, yeah. what's that thing, that music, that yeah. show, that movie, the video there, game, there the are, app? There are so many, especially right now, right? Because this is so much of our lives right now, our, our TV yeah. shows and movies <laughs> and, and apps and games and, and all of that. Um, there, there are a few things right now that, that I'm, that I'm getting into a ton. Um, I, I've been watching the new Pope and the young Pope on HBO, uh, which are incredibly dark and incredibly wonderful. They're Italian soap operas and they're filthy. Uh, and Jude Law plays the first American Pope. And then John Malkovich plays eventually his, uh, his English successor. Uh, and they're, they're brilliant and horrible at the same time. <laughs> and, and there are all sorts of good things. I wear this is my, my plague outfit is a sweatshirt with a photo of Jude Law as Pope Pius XIII. Oh, goodness. Penny, as his birth name, um, <laughs> because I find that when I go to a grocery store and I'm wearing a hooded sweatshirt with a giant image of a Pope on it, and I'm wearing bright red corduroy pants, that I don't have to worry about social distancing <laughs> because people give me plenty of space. Do you know that there's a video game that's under, I, I don't know when the release date is, but there's a Pope simulator video game. It's on Steam. Uh, so I'm, I've got it in my watch list. I'm going to have to check that out. That'll be There's fun. There's a, a friend of mine who's on Twitter who is a Roman Catholic priest, and he uh, live streams himself playing video games on Twitch uh, a couple of nights a week. Yeah. Uh, and so he's planning to play it, and we'll see. But he said I, he needs to check it out first to make sure that it isn't you know, heretical or blasphemous. I, I'm sure it is. That's, that's the thing, right? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm drawn to all of these. When, whenever a show comes out or a film comes out and there's some sort of clergy engagement in it, there's a character who's a priest or a bishop or something like that, I'm always drawn to them. Uh, and I always enjoy them in, in weird ways because they're so wrong in so many ways and, yeah. and so eerily right in other ways. But I always make sure I catch them and get a good feel for them because I know sooner or later at a coffee hour somewhere, someone's going to yeah, tell me up come and up. tell me it was either yeah. the best or the worst depiction of, of clergy life ever. And, and I've got to be prepared to interact with it a little bit. And the vestments are always wrong. Have you ever just wanted to call Hollywood and say, I'm available to be a, a vestment consultant? It drives my wife crazy because whenever <laughs> we're watching a show or a film, uh, somebody will come on. It'll be a scene from a marriage or, or something like that. Yeah, uh, And at some point I'll be opening my mouth to say it's the wrong color stole, or you can't yeah. wear that without a surplus or whatever it might be. Uh, and as soon as I start to open my mouth, she'll, <laughs> she'll just, she'll either lean over and say, just stop. Nobody cares. Just stop. No, nobody knows what you, nobody cares what you, but someone's wrong on the TV. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. So what is that on HBO? What is that show called? Uh, it's, so there were two seasons of it. The first one was called okay. The Young Pope. Uh, and okay. that's that's Jude Law becoming the Pope. And, it, and it's really wonderful. Uh, and then the second season, which came out just this year, is called The New Pope. 
Uh, and it's hmm. continuing the story. So it's the same story, but each With John Malkovich, its own, its own name, but you can find them uh, on Netflix. Um, and okay. they're, yeah, they're dark, they're weird, um, but they're, they're enjoyable. Yeah. Especially for clergy people. Well, Aaron Zook, thank you very much for joining me for this episode of this calling. I hope you and your family stay safe and healthy with all this uh, virus stuff going on. And I hope we're back in our churches soon. It would be nice. It would be very nice. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you for listening to my conversation with Aaron. Again, if you'd like to get in touch with him, be sure to look in the show notes for links. You can reach me on Twitter at Apple Tree Pods. And on Facebook, there's a page for Apple Tree Podcasts. Feel free to like and subscribe and review and share this with anyone who might be interested. You know, all the same stuff you do with all the other podcasts that you listen to. Why not check out my other podcast, which is called Notes from Norwich. We're just about to publish our fourth episode. My friends Marguerite and JN and I are looking at Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. The intro music for this is called Cheerful by Bird, Bird, Bird. And the closing music that you're hearing in the background is called St. Mary's Falls by Tom Ganaway. Again, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I'm Chris Arnold, and I'll talk to you next time on This Calling. Bye for now.